heard a story a while back about an old seminary professor who used to critique his students' prayers. He would call upon them to pray at the beginning of class, and then after they were finished praying, he would take time to uh, tell them what was theologically correct and incorrect about their prayers. Tough professor, right? And so one day he calls upon this first-year student who's terrified of having his, his prayer critiqued in front of the whole class. And so he scrambles, and at the last minute he bows his head, and he says, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, so on and so forth. And then after he was finished praying, he looked up with confidence feeling confident that his prayer was free from critique, and he was correct. And the reason why is because on that day he prayed the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is a model prayer given to us by Jesus. Christ gave it to his disciples, and it was meant for us as well, his greater Christian audience, and it's meant to be a, a pattern for us to emulate when we pray, we're going to look at Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer this morning in Luke chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there, Luke 11. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4 this morning as we continue our study through the Gospel of Luke. This is no doubt a prayer I know you're familiar with. Many of us are more familiar with Matthew's account of this prayer, Matthew 6. That's often the one that is recited uh, on Sunday morning at, at certain churches. It's the one that's sang during weddings. It's the one that's, that's recited on uh, Friday nights in the locker rooms before the football game at, at some schools. And as one you'll probably hear at times recited uh, during a TV show or, or in the movies. Uh, Jesus first mentions this prayer during his ministry in Galilee, when one of his disciples, he's giving his sermon on the mountain, his disciple makes the request, teach us to pray. And so he gives that prayer. Similar situation in Luke chapter 11, but it takes place later in Jesus' earthly ministry while they're headed toward Jerusalem. Remember, his ministry in Galilee at this point is over. He's got his sights set on Jerusalem and while they're traveling he's teaching his followers many things and one of his disciples makes this request again we don't know if it's one of the 12 or one of the 72 but he makes a unique request he says Lord teach us to pray the way John taught his disciples so no doubt he had either been witness to the ministry of John the Baptist or he had seen fruit from John the Baptist's ministry. Let's look at exactly what is said here. Look at Luke 11, verse 1. We're told, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. The disciples were no doubt drawn to the way the Lord Jesus communicated with this heavenly Father. And, and it's clear here that they were drawn to the way that John's disciples communicated with him as well. And so they, they request that Jesus instruct them on how to pray 
And notice again, Jesus gives a similar teaching in Luke 11 as he does in Matthew chapter 6. This is not because Jesus didn't have anything else important to say about prayer, but he repeats himself here, I believe, because this model prayer is one of the most important things that Jesus has to say about prayer. Twice, when this request is made, Jesus gives a similar teaching which should indicate to you and me when we see that, that we really need to perk up and listen to what's being communicated here. I've heard it said before that if something is worth saying once, it's worth saying twice. Jesus thought this was worth saying twice. As far as we know, he may have taught it many other times that we don't have recorded, but he felt it was needed, uh, this, this prayer needed to be repeated. So we need to study it, right? While many of you, again, are no doubt familiar with this prayer because you've heard it in different settings, this is meant to be a model for us. It is meant to provide us with a pattern on how to pray. A.W. Pink in his great book on the Beatitudes and the Lord's Prayer, I'm going to be quoting from this book quite a bit this morning. He says this about the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer teaches us both the manner and the method of how to pray and the matters for which to pray. It should therefore be highly esteemed by Christians. Jesus teaches us both the manner and the method of how to pray with this prayer. This prayer not only teaches us how to pray as Christians, but also it teaches us who we are praying to, which influences the way in which we pray and the way in which we live our lives. Let me read this prayer for us, and then I want to draw out several lessons that we take from this prayer. Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of God. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Would you pray with me? Father, teach us to pray. May our prayers be centered on you, your will, your ways our sinfulness, and our great need of you. I pray that as our ways of addressing you change, our thoughts about you would change, our beliefs about you would change, our lives that we live before you would change in accordance with your word and for your purposes and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Notice three lessons we learn here about prayer from the Lord's Prayer. Number one, God's person and work should influence our prayers. 
God's person and work should influence our prayers. Look at verse 2. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Right here off the bat, we learn two vital truths about our God. Number one, he is holy. Number two, he is Father. He is holy, he is Father. You have the transcendence and the eminence of God right here in this single verse. He is holy, meaning he is set apart from us, superior to us in every way, yet he is Father. We learn that through Christ we are brought near to God. We are adopted into his family. A.W. Pink again says this, We should draw near unto the throne of grace with suitable apprehensions of God's sovereign majesty and power, yet with a holy confidence in His fatherly goodness. Both truths are present here. God is holy other than us, and He is a heavenly Father to us. Jesus leads with Father. God is our Father. We are his children. This is known as the doctrine of adoption. Here's a good definition for you of this doctrine from Ligon Duncan. Look at this up on the screen. The doctrine of adoption says that God has declared as an act of his grace that we are not only saved from our sins and justified in his sight, but we are now children of his household. I've said this before that this This doctrine moves us believers out of the courtroom where God is acting as our judge, declaring us not guilty but righteous in Christ. It moves us out of that setting and into the living room of our heavenly Father where He calls us sons and daughters because of who we are in Christ. J.I. Packer, when talking about this, Glorious doctrine in his classic book, Knowing God, said this on the doctrine of adoption. He has quite a bit to say. Look at this quote. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Father is the Christian name for God. Hacker also explains in this book that while the doctrine of justification that teaches that we're declared not guilty but righteous in Christ by God's grace alone, through our faith alone, in Christ alone, while that doctrine is the most important in Christianity, the doctrine of adoption brings with it the greatest privilege. John says this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love The Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. It is a privilege, believers, to look at the creator of all that is and be able to call him Abba, Father. That truth should influence the way in which you pray and should influence the way in which you live your life. 
Let me give you an example. Look down in verse 4. The fact that we have been forgiven and adopted into God's family should influence the way in which we treat others. Jesus says, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Why should we seek to bring reconciliation to broken relationships as believers? Why should we, we ourselves forgive those who have wronged us? Why should we extend grace to them and forgive them? The answer is simple because God has extended His amazing grace to us. He has forgiven us. He has restored us. Jesus reminds us in this prayer, He reminds us throughout His earthly ministry that those who have been forgiven much ought to forgive much. Forgiven people forgive. If God has forgiven you and restored you, you should be able to do the same for others. Your debt has been canceled by your seeking forgiveness from God. Therefore, you should cancel debts when forgiveness is sought. Now, I say that like it's easy, but it's anything but, right? Forgiving people is hard because of our sin nature. Some people believe they're, they're a forgiving, forgiving person because they just, they're, they're easygoing and they let stuff just roll off of them. That's not what it means to be a forgiving person. That just means you're easygoing and you let stuff roll off of you. What about when that person cuts you or someone you love deeply to the core? To forgive in that sort of circumstance, in that sort of situation, takes a supernatural act of God's grace. The Spirit of God must, must do this work in our heart and life, and He must give you the proper perspective of how you've been forgiven much so that you will forgive much. This has to be cultivated. How? By going back to the gospel and 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 growing deeper in our knowledge of the gospel. The more God makes that our focus, the more we're reminded of God's amazing forgiveness and the wonderful blessing of salvation and the wonderful privilege of adoption, the more we will spend time loving and forgiving others, knowing in our hearts that we have been loved much and forgiven much. That's the way it works. So that's the first lesson we learn about prayer from the model prayer, we learn that God's person and work should influence the way in which we pray. Notice the second lesson learned here. We learn that God must be the center of our prayers. God must be the center of our prayers. One lesson we should learn from Christ's model prayer, one lesson that I learned, is that at times our priorities are out of whack when we pray. Notice the focus of Jesus is first on his Father. His prayer begins with God. He says, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Notice the order of the prayer here. It's significant. You have God's name, God's reign, and God's will. Then after that, you have our provision, our forgiveness, and our protection. That order is significant, believers. Jesus is, is showing us here that God and his kingdom must always take priority in our prayer lives. Does God's kingdom, does God's name, 
Does God's reign, does God's will take priority in the way in which you pray and in the way in which you live your life? You know what? When our prayers are ordered in this way, when our lives are ordered in this way, that's where we find most uh, the, the supreme happiness, lasting joy. Do you know that? We talked about this last week in the sermon last week. Many believe that we have to forfeit happiness for holiness. If we go God's way, we have to, we have to abandon our way, and that, that means abandoning our happiness. And many view this in prayer, too. They, they think that, that if God's will's done, that must mean my will's not going to be done. And they don't want that because they don't think that ultimately brings happiness. They believe they have to pray one way or another. Hopefully God will work my will so that then I'll be happy. Sometimes when people request prayer, people will get offended if you pray for them. And then at the end you say, but God, your will be done. They think that's insensitive as if God's will being accomplished is not what is best. Jesus prayed in this way, did he not? In Gethsemane, when he prayed for the cup to pass from him, the cup of God's wrath that he was to drink in our place, he said, Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And guess what? The cup didn't pass from Christ. He drank it in full. He laid his life down for us at Calvary. He died a painful death on a shameful cross for us. He endured God's wrath for us. Was that the better path to take? You better believe it. The more glorious path, while still the most difficult. That was the path that led to true joy and lasting happiness for all of us who believe on him a life lived for God in accordance with God's will is rarely the easiest path to take but it's the better path by far and it's the path that leads to true and lasting happiness it's where joy is found misery is a life lived for self apart from and opposed to God now the world tells us the opposite it says happiness is to be found in working your will in every situation. God says in his word in Proverbs 14, 12, that there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it's the way of death. God created us for himself. He saved us to live as his kingdom people for his glory in accordance with his will. He created us to be him-centered, and when we are, we find the happiness we so desperately want and seek. Our lives are to be ordered in this way. Now again, like with the previous point, this is easier said than done. We hear that we're to be God-centered in the way we live our lives and in the way we pray, and we, we ascribe to that. We say that's, that's right, but if we're being, being honest, we're more concerned again with, with our will being done than God's kingdom coming and His purposes being accomplished. Think about the way in which you pray. We often pray more for, for the physical, the needs of the now, than we do the spiritual, those things that matter for eternity. 
And the reason why is because those things seem more pressing and concrete to us while the advancement of God's kingdom and His will ultimately being, being accomplished, that sounds distant and disconnected and secondary and abstract. If we're, we, we may not voice that, but we, we show that we believe that in the way in which we pray and in the way we live our lives. During this COVID-19 crisis, how many prayers have been delivered up for physical healing as the death tolls rise? How many prayers have been offered for sanity while people are being held up at home? Prayer, prayers for job security and, and finances. How many prayers have been made like that compared to prayers for the lost to be rescued from spiritual darkness and restored to a right relationship with the living God during this time of, of crisis and tragedy how many times has one pleaded for dead hearts to be made alive versus finding a cure for this deadly virus how many prayers have been made for the church to reach those staying at home listening online versus prayers for those at home to be able to go back to work not saying that we shouldn't be praying for both we absolutely should but I believe there's probably an imbalance there wouldn't you say the needs of the now, those things that are, that are temporal and fleeting, those things seem to be more important and those things often take priority in our time of prayer rather than those things that are heavenly and spiritual and matter for eternity. Is this a struggle for you? You have a difficult time having the same kind of zeal for these first petitions as you do the last petitions. If so, here are some suggestions for you, practical suggestions. First, pray. Pray that the Lord would give you a heart and a zeal for first things. Pray that God would give you this burning desire for His kingdom to come and His will to be done. Pray that He would make that your greatest desire. Also, when you pray for for yourself and pray for others. Be sure and be Christ-centered and gospel-focused in those prayers. Before you pray for one's finances or physical condition, pray for their prosperity spiritually. Pray for them to be forgiven of sin. Pray for them to be restored to God. Pray for believers to grow in godliness. Listen, if you are more concerned about the physical condition of a person than you are where they will spend eternity, you do not love them like you should. One final lesson. We learned here, we talked about this throughout the message this morning, and that is this, that God provides the proper pattern for our prayers, the Lord's Prayer. In this prayer, we see either directly stated or implied all the necessary parts of a God-honoring prayer. We see adoration, we see confession, we see petition with thanksgiving implied. First, again, he leads with adoration. Look at verse 2 again. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. 
We mentioned earlier that we're brought near to God through Christ. We have been adopted into His family. He is our Father. We learned that at the very beginning of this prayer, but we also learned that He is wholly other. He is to be regarded, honored, acknowledged as holy. He rules and reigns over us. We are to acknowledge that when we pray. And, and get this, we're just to spend time praying and praising God for God. We're to spend time just doing that with ourselves removed from the picture. Psalm 100 gives us a, a, a good model of how to do this. Good example. He says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. Yes, we're to worship the Lord for what he's done. The, the psalmist says that in Psalm 100, he made us. We're the sheep of his pasture. In, in Luke 11, we, we learn that we have been brought near through Christ. God is our heavenly father, but he is also holy other. The psalmist says in verse 3 of Psalm 100, know that the Lord, he is God. We're to praise God for the fact that he is God. We're to praise God for the fact that he is high above us. He is transcendent. He is wholly other. He is greater than us in every way. We're to simply praise him for that reason and for that reason alone. A.W. Pink, again, says this. This is great. Our primary duty in prayer is to disregard ourselves and to give God the preeminence. How much of your prayer time is spent doing that? How much of your prayer time is just spent adoring God for God? We often follow the Acts model at our house, very practical way to pray. I've got it up on the screen for you. You can look at it, use it if you want to. It's an acronym. A stands for adoration. That's what we've been talking about, praising God for God. We spend time just doing that. And then you have confession, confessing your sins to God. And then we move into thanksgiving, thanking God for, for all the good things that he has given. And then we have a time of, of supplication, making our requests known to God. We, we go through each of these points individually because we want to be sure and, and spend time on each of these because often in our prayer time we go immediately to the bottom and we bypass the other three. Don't do that. We want to be sure and spend time in each of these, especially the first, because if Pink's words are true, which I believe that they are, that our primary duty in prayer is to disregard ourselves and to give God the preeminence, then a lot of us are, are failing at this primary duty in prayer. Are you spending time in your prayer time praising God God. Spending time in adoration. We're, we're to spend time doing that. And after adoration, the Lord moves on to petition. And notice the first petitions are directed toward God. He says, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Again, like we said earlier, our, our fo focus 
first and foremost is to be centered on God, upon the things that He does that matter for eternity. Our focus in our prayer, in our time of supplication, in our request, is to pray that, that His name be made great, His kingdom come, His will be done. Then we move to the personal petitions. Jesus prays for physical provision, for personal forgiveness, and for spiritual protection. Look at verses 3 and 4. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. So we see here it's not a bad thing to be focused on ourselves when praying. Christ gave us this example of how we are to bring these personal requests to God as well. We're to seek Him for provision spiritually, for forgiveness personally, and for protection spiritually. Christ shows us we're to acknowledge God for our our most basic need. We're to bring our most basic needs to Him. Our daily bread, we're to pray for that and we're to praise Him when we receive that. But notice also that while the physical is mentioned here, Jesus focuses primarily on spiritual needs, on the fact that we need to be seeking God for forgiveness, we need to be seeking Him for rescue from evil. How much of your personal time spent in prayer, how much of it is spent on that, praying for protection for you and your family, not just physically, but but more importantly, spiritually, from spiritual danger. We need to be sure that our our regular petitions to the Lord are not falling short in this area. So in this model prayer, we have adoration, supplication, and confession, and of course, thanksgiving is implied for who God is and for what He's done for us. What a great lesson from our Lord on prayer. There's so much here in these four verses, isn't there? We know from Luke's gospel, Christ not only taught this, He exampled this for us. Christ prayed in this way. His prayers were were Him-focused, focused focused on the, the Father's will and the advancement of His kingdom, and He also, He lived His life in this way. While He is God, God the Son, He became a man to fulfill the will of His Father in heaven. Christ was Him-centered during His earthly ministry. He made it known again and again. He's come to accomplish the Father's will. He has come to accomplish salvation to the glory of His heavenly Father. He fulfilled God's will through His life and death and resurrection. And as a result, He ushered in God's kingdom through the work He accomplished at Calvary. He made a way for sinful man to be restored to holy God and move from being God's enemies to being forgiven, to being His kingdom people, to being His children. He did it through the perfect life that He lived, through the perfect death that He died as our substitute and perfect sacrifice and through His resurrection. And the question I want to leave you with today is this. Are you trusting in His person and great work alone? 
for your salvation. If not, I invite you to go to the Lord this morning. Go to Him in prayer and confess your sin to Him. Tell Him you're a sinner in need of salvation. Seek forgiveness from Him. Give your life up and over to Him. Place your faith and trust in Him alone for salvation and be saved. Let's pray together.